This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Well, welcome back to What Matters Most. I appreciate everyone around the world who tunes in. Got a great show for everyone today, for those who love history, and that includes me. Our guest has written a really fascinating book that I had no idea about this. It's Tuskegee Student Uprising, A History. It's quite the powerful tale, and he's going to talk about it. He's the director of the Center for Educators and Schools of the New York Public Library. It's an honor to finally have on the show our new friend, Mr. Brian Jones. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Nice to be here. Brian, I want to ask an obvious question for some, but others might not know the answer. Why are libraries so important? A public place for knowledge and free book reading and stuff like that. I grew up as a library lover. Why are they important, though, for our society, our civilization, and our culture? Well, I think libraries are one of the few places where you can, for free, come and fully explore to your heart's content and in any direction you choose the full content of the cultural heritage of our species. Um, there's an open-endedness of the public library. It, it points in all directions and it's totally up to you um, what you do with that resource. So there's a kind of, you know, infinite adventures await the curious. And so the library doesn't compel you to read anything or to pursue anything or to watch anything or look at anything. It offers you the opportunity to read, view, watch, listen to everything. And so it's entirely up to you, the journey. What will you read, view, listen, watch? And then what will you read, view, listen, watch after that? And in what order? And will you will you complete it or will you just get a third of the way through and bring it back? Um, I think there's also a way in which the library is one of our remaining civic spaces. That is, it's a shared public space. The books belong not to you personally, but to all of us. And so it's a basic civic act to borrow a book, take decent care of it, and then bring it back. I mean, where else in our society is that the model? Come in, take whatever you want, walk away with it, and fingers crossed, hope you bring it back uh, for others to use. And the fact that it's a functioning model uh, is really amazing. I mean, it's it's beautiful in a way. And um, yeah, in a, I, I feel it especially in New York City, um, you know, which is a one of the most expensive cities to live in that here here are these many we have 91 locations in new york city and that means there's 91 places in this city where you can use the bathroom use the wi-fi uh enjoy the air conditioning if it's hot or the or the warmth if it's cold um and you can participate fully you can join a class be in a conversation watch a program, raise your hand and have a comment or a question. You can take things and walk away. You can participate fully without spending a nickel. And where else in public life is that the model? The only other place I can think of is public education. 
Oh, I just feel like I'm in church because I just have always loved the library. It felt to me like a church, a place for knowledge. And I was definitely affected, influenced, and empowered by some great librarians growing up too. The special kind of person to work in the library. They, If I had questions, oh, they were so eager. Someone is curious. Let me help and make suggestions. And like you said, you start reading something and course in my infinite ignorance i'd say wait what's that who is that i never heard of that book oh come right over here nine stacks over what made you get into it how did you end up in the library world i know it's such a thing i was i was an elementary school teacher and i'm ashamed to say that i i was teaching in harlem and i wasn't using the library really i'm ashamed to say so i mean which is in part what i'm trying to correct in my current role um and trying to do right by my former self. But basically, I I then went to do a PhD in education, which led me to the research for this book, which led me to Alabama and to education history and Black education history. And I was in need of support. I mean, it takes a lot of support and uh, sometimes space to write, sometimes money to write. I mean, it takes a lot to kind of make it through when you're trying to do that kind of research and writing. And that's another thing the library provides. So I got two fellowships at the library. One was no money, but it was just a space in the flagship building with the lions in Midtown. I felt like, oh my God, I'm a real writer. Um, and then the second one was at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, where I did get a modest stipend and had office space. I couldn't believe it. And um, and there I just fell in love with the library. I was in every day and I was like, this is ridiculous. This is an amazing place. And just as you described, one book leads you to the next book. And, and having colleagues there and the librarians who were so smart and thoughtful and their critical comments on my research were so helpful. And then I was looking for a job, you know, and I was on the academic job market. And my idea was I'm going to be a professor of education. I'm going to. I'm going to teach teachers. And I really enjoyed that. I did some of that at, you know, as an adjunct. And then, but then I got this other idea, like just being in the Schomburg Center, I just got this idea like, well, what if I could just stay here? Like, this is a magical place. Like, what if I didn't have to leave? Like, you know, like you described the lights blinking and you're kind of like, well, could I stay? Um, I, and then they had a job, Associate Director of Education. And I kind of fell out of my chair and I, I applied and took the job and decided that uh, because it was pretty much a, it was a very open-ended job. I'd never had a job like that where they were like, well, what do you want to make of this job? And what I decided was that I should reach out to my teacher people and help them use the library. The Schomburg Center is a world-class collection. It might be the largest collection of African-American historical materials anywhere in North America, let alone the world. It has 11 million items. And, and so I thought, well, it's usually researchers who are, you know, all over that place. But what if I could help teachers and even elementary school teachers like me use it? So I started creating curriculum and workshops and I would, I would curate, you know, items that I thought could be relevant, impactful photographs. You know, you don't have to, you could be a reader at any level and read a photograph and get it and have a rich conversation about it and learn from it. The Schomburg Center has half a million photographs going back to the origins of photography. Um, so anyway, so that's what I was doing. And the library, I think, looked at that work and thought, 
huh, this guy seems to like doing this. And yet he does it with energy. What if we could get him to do it for the whole New York Public Library, not just for the Schomburg Center? So that's what I'm doing now. I'm the inaugural director of a new unit of the library that is devoted to serving up the library's incredible resources to teachers. And that includes the archives, um, the Stephen A. Schwartzman building, the Library for the Performing Arts, and the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, and the 88 branch locations as well. So we give teachers books and credit-bearing workshops and access to the archives and all kinds of other amazing experiences. I feel like you hit the library lottery, literally. You're in the crown jewel. <laughs> and that, man, the only way it can be better is if it's attached to some sort of cool co-op where you walk through a door and that's where you live. And you have a nice view yeah, totally. of the, like the park or something. Because <laughs> I once pitched the idea. I mean, they must have thought I was nuts. I was like, wouldn't it be cool if there were like library apartments and then you could just come out of your apartment in the library and they're like, please go home. You have to go home. <laughs> but it sounds like you, you've hit it. That's I mean, for a guy doing what you love, I can't imagine a better gig. It's a, it's the best job I've ever had. It's 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 mind blowing. I mean, I I was it was really hard to leave the Schomburg Center because it's such a special place. I'm no longer based there, but I console myself with the idea that I still work with the Schomburg Center, even if that's no longer my my office location. So, given all that, how alarmed are you at these people that are trying to ban books? Which takes me right back to Ray Bradbury and Fahrenheit. You know, and also the Nazis and, you know, you name it, the revolution in Iran. They always go for the books and it's uh, it's weird. Often they're classics that why would you ban that and why ban anything? What do you feel from your side? I think from my side, you know, I'm not a librarian by training, but I work among librarians and and I and I've learned to see and listen to them and, and see how they see things. And, and I think often what I hear them making is kind of what you started with, which is a connection between libraries and knowledge and democracy. And there's a way in which people who have a more anti-democratic impulse want to control and constrain knowledge in certain kinds of ways. And so it's definitely a pattern in um, world history and uh, sadly in U.S. history, that book banning and book burning and kind of censorship of, you know, that watchful eye on the curriculum and fearing that knowledge will get out of control or will point in directions that we're afraid of. Um, that goes hand in hand with an attempt to curtail the rights and freedoms and liberties of ordinary people um, who might get ideas that go against whatever kind of power grab is is desired by by those people so yeah it's frightening and from where i sit it's bad news it's it's really it's really frightening it's something we have to figure out how to challenge at every opportunity and we had hannah nicole jones on who did the brilliant you know, 1619 project, and we've had other historians on, and Dr. Eddie Cloud, and people across the spectrum. Your book is falls into this line. Why are we so afraid of our history? Why can't we just teach what happened and learn from it? Well, we it did happen. Why can't we talk about it? Well, I think 
what we learn from the past, um, which is always changing, um, you know, it's weird to think of the past as changing, um, but rather what we know about it is changing and growing over time. And there are reasonable debates and people get things wrong and try to fix them. And, you know, it's, it's not, it's not um, a perfect science, but we work towards greater knowledge and greater understanding. But the problem is that sometimes the story we want to tell ourselves about the present and the future has very strong is very strongly connected to a story we're telling ourselves about the past and if we are, are deeply invested in a particular story about the past it's not just because of the past but it's because there that story therefore has implications about the present and the future and um and so that's where suddenly how we tell stories about the past becomes um, part of our struggles over power and privilege and democracy in the present. So the past is a very powerful shaping and and acknowledging and struggling with at times stories about our past is not easy to do. Um, and it makes people very uncomfortable sometimes to learn things about their past. I mean, I don't know, you just it's you could take a small example, like think of somebody in your family whom you think highly of, you know, someone um, from the past of your family, maybe. And then were you to learn something that was not so pleasant about them, that could be hard to deal with. Like, well, what does that mean that about? Well, I, I looked up to this person and now I've learned X. It's like, you know, it's hard to deal with those things. But I would like to think that it's better to know than not to know that it's better to go through this world with a fuller understanding than with a lesser understanding. It's better to have a closer approximation of the truth than live in the world of fairy tales and fantasy. Um, that the more you know, the, that the better you're able to deal with the difficulties of the present, the challenges of the present. You're able to meet those challenges maybe or, or, or do better if you know better about the past. Um, and I think that's the hope, but it's not easy to do that because people are so invested in particular, and I, you know, I include myself. Um, it, it, it's true for all of us. It's a basic, it's fundamental to us as humans. We're, we're a storytelling species. I mean, what are you if not a story? You know, what are you if not a story? You have a story about yourself and so that is essentially who you are um if you were to that's why when people get neurodegenerative disorders and can't remember crucial elements of their own story then that loss is so profound to how can you hold on to a sense of yourself without a sense of the past and the story you tell yourself about how you got from where you were in the past to the present. So all of this activity of history writing isn't just for scholars, really, although, you know, scholars go at it a particular way, but it's really fundamental to our species that we all do this. We all are historians, if nothing else, of ourselves, our families, our communities, 
Um, we all try to hold on to a story of ourselves. And then sometimes new knowledge appears that challenges those stories. And that can be very difficult. But I'm with you. I want to know the truth. I feel like I'm Tom Cruise screaming at Jack Nicholson and a few good men. I want to know the truth because, one, the real history is fascinating. I want to know how we got here. And I I agree with you. It's really hard. You know, I grew up with all the myths and fables. And then I got suspicious and I started really reading. And a lot of stuff is hidden and kept from us. And it's really tough to sudden one day wake up and realize, oh, so we're the Death Star? Wait a minute. So Andrew Jackson's like worse than Darth Vader? But at least I know the truth. To me, well, who said the truth shall set you free? Was that in the Bible? I don't even remember. I mean, you're a you know more about stuff than me, but I do feel like I'd rather know that's where I'm at. And that's why I love libraries, books, and people like you who write these books. Well, yeah, it's a journey. I mean, we're all on the journey. Um, and in researching this book, you know, I I had certain conceptions of things that that I had to wrestle with because people saw things, I met people who saw things differently. and. You know, if I kind of feel like when you're doing this kind of digging and research, if you're not surprised, you're not doing it right. Like the, if you find exactly what you expect to find, then something has, you know, you're not digging, you're not looking closely enough because the reality is always more, it's always richer. It's always more complicated. It's always surprising in some way. What really surprised you as you dug into this? And will you share what this is all about first? I guess I'm assuming like everyone read the book. First, talk about how you came to this. You alluded to it earlier. You went down there. Uh, I, once again, this was one of our one, wonderful hidden parts of history that I keep finding out these interesting aspects and episodes in our uh, in our time. Talk about what it was and how you came in, into it, dove into it, and then we can get into the, some of the nuances. Sure. Um, so when I was an elementary school teacher in Harlem, I felt that I was living through an attack on public education when it seemed like they were trying to privatize it at every step. And so my colleagues and I tried to organize with the family members of the communities we were serving and with our other teachers to challenge this. We protested, we organized. And it seemed to me that the appeals, um, the kind of public appeals for attacking the teachers union, and especially in New York, and attacking public education, kind of demonizing teachers, um, focused often on the fate of black students. And there was a way in which they tried to claim a kind of moral high ground that everything they were doing was particularly aimed at um, rescuing black students from the clutches of public education. And so, um, you know, as a black person myself, and many of my colleagues were black teachers, um, I found this curious that we were the enemy and the bad guys in the story all of a sudden. We the ones who were showing up every day. Um, and so that got me thinking about kind of how we got here to this moment. And I started digging into Black education history. And the story, my reading, brought me back all the way to the founding of Tuskegee. And Tuskegee 
I realized was actually kind of foundational to this pattern. After the Civil War, there's the moment of democratic experimentation. The world was turned upside down. Black people had rights and voted. It was a kind of brief flicker moment of promise in the South that was then crushed violently. And we know we know less about that kind of revolutionary moment than we know about what came after, which is the Klan and white supremacy reasserted and Jim Crow was the kind of new settlement. And so the the one of the things, one of the things that came flowering out of the South was just this incredible proliferation of schools. The freed people, the former formerly enslaved people, had this incredible thirst for learning and literacy, and they would sponsor out of their own meager income schools of all shapes and sizes. Um, and then philanthropy swooped in and supported the building of schools, of course. But in Tuskegee, they found a particular model, and that model was intended to help the freed people to kind of adjust themselves to the new regime in the South and to, to kind of make their peace with it. And they hoped that this model of education would train people to kind of accommodate to this undemocracy of the South. They called it the Hampton Industrial Model, it started at Hampton, spread to Tuskegee, which is founded by Booker T. Washington. And so, uh, and really, this uh, the the book that opened my eyes to this is by James Anderson called "Education of Blacks in the South." And anybody who's really geeked out by this history absolutely must read that book. And so, I just got obsessed with reading about Booker T. Washington and Tuskegee. And when you read those books, starting with James Anderson, it's very clear. And you even read Washington himself. What's really clear is that students protested the whole time that they didn't want a constrained education that limited their horizons. They wanted to break out and read more widely and be exposed to knowledge and skills and possibilities more widely, that their horizon was wider than the horizon of the school. And they pushed and pushed and pushed at that. And that to me, I was waiting, looking, looking, looking to see where was there a book that was about that. And I saw that Tuskegee had, that the students went on strike in 1896 and again in 1903. And I thought, oh my God, that's the book I should write. Nobody has written that. Because, you know, people dismiss W.E.B. Du Bois as a critic of Washington because, you know, Booker T. Washington was born in slavery. He felt the lash. Like he was trying to build a school in Alabama. Like that was dangerous. And then Du Bois is over here criticizing him, but Du Bois is in the North. He was born in Massachusetts. He went to Harvard, you know? So you can kind of dismiss him as a critic, but the students is a different question. The students were there too. They weren't in Massachusetts. They were in Alabama on campus and they weren't from Massachusetts, especially in the early years, they were from the South, they were from Mississippi and Louisiana and Alabama. So they shared the dangers. They shared, they were there in time and place and yet pushed and challenged. 
I thought, oh man, that's a really interesting new take on this long-standing debate about Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois. That's a that's a new perspective, the student perspective. My dad went to Tuskegee. So we got to, we got to talking about this. And he was like, well, Brian, what we should do is we should go there together. Let's drive there together. Let's take a road trip. <laughs> he loves to drive. I was like, let's fly. He's like, let's drive. And uh, so we drove, <laughs> we drove to Alabama to the archives of Tuskegee, looking for evidence of that 1896 and 1903, those strikes, those student strikes. And we met with the archivists there and we put on the white gloves and we're handling the old dusty documents and looking through the ledgers and looking through the microfiche and all the things. First of all, neither of us had ever been in an archive before. This was, you know, this was new to us. It was like, how do you even navigate this? So you really are reliant on the librarians and the archivists to help you and kind of guide you. Um, but I, I had these, I was armed with the footnotes from the books I had read. And I was like, these are the citations. It was just a few citations, but I figured, well, where there's that, those few citations, there will be more. Like I will, I'll dig up more stuff. But we, we failed really. I mean, we like spent days looking and looking and looking and failed and just there wasn't more. It's like, you know, the further you go back in time, the thinner the record gets, let alone the record of student voices themselves, like them writing down something they thought or felt and it's just not captured, it's not available. And so I thought, well, I'm never going to get a PhD, I guess. I'm just going to be a, I'm just going to be failed student uh, of this process. And one of the archivists, seeing that I was so dejected, said, well, if you're interested in student protests, I think I have something you might be interested in. She leaves and comes, goes back, brings out this giant leather-bound volume. I mean, really huge. That is a bound compilation of many, many, many years of the student newspaper in the 1960s, the Campus Digest. And... I had nothing, I knew nothing. My dad graduated in 61. He also knew nothing about what we were about to see. We open it up and we're looking together and there we can see on the page, Tuskegee students stepping off campus. They're going to Montgomery. Turn, the, they're participating in, in crucial battles that are already kind of you know historic moments in the civil rights movement. There they are, turn the page. Whoa, they're going out into the rural Black Belt counties around Tuskegee, and they're meeting up with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, who founds the first really Black Panther Party, the Lowndes County Freedom Organization. They're doing this like heroic voter registration, very dangerous work in the Black Belt. Tuskegee students are right there with them. Turn the page. A Tuskegee student is murdered in an off-campus incident. We couldn't believe it. Turn the page. The students are now making, even they're dissatisfied with the reaction of the administration to that murder. And they're making even more intense demands of Tuskegee's administration. Turn the page. They bring Stokely Carmichael to campus and he's giving radical speeches. Turn the page. They take the board of trustees hostage and present their typed demands to the board of trustees uh, for transforming Tuskegee into a black university. 
as they call it. Turn the page. There's the National Guard invades the campus. The administration shuts down the campus for two weeks. They dismiss all students and say, you are no longer registered as students of Tuskegee so that they can weed out the, the organizers and they force everyone to reapply as a way to re weed out the organizers. And so this whole epic battle that's the students fighting for democracy in, in the county, in Macon County and in the Black Belt, and then fighting to transform their own school. And so my, you know, my study, my degree was in urban education. So I, I saw this as a, an important moment in black history. It's also a, a school history. It's a moment where students are taking the lead off campus in this tremendous struggle. And then they turn their attention on campus um, and they, they try to transform teaching and learning. And they're doing it at the school that was the foundation stone for a kind of conservative strategy for black education after the defeat of radical reconstruction. And so they're doing it at this, at, they're doing it not just anywhere, they're doing it there at Tuskegee, founded by Booker T. Washington. So it's just like this really explosive story that um, is not, you know, Tuskegee is well known for many things and rightly so. I mean, it is, you know, uh, Booker T. Washington himself, George Washington Carver, the famous scientist on campus. Um, you know, they, they're very proud, Tuskegee's very proud of the Tuskegee Airmen, the pilots, the black pilots in World War II. They are, you know, um, uh, associated in popular memory with the unfortunate public health catastrophe where they collaborated with a, a study that, that, um, that basically deceived patients, black patients with syphilis into thinking they were getting treatments when they weren't. Um, and now they have a bioethics center there um, to try to reckon with that history and that legacy. But Tuskegee as well, you know, it has many claims to fame in other words, but it doesn't have in popular memory at least, its student movement isn't part of that claim to fame. But I, I thought, I, I just was, my jaw was on the floor looking at the evidence um, there. And, and then that got me, you know, going down the rabbit hole of calling people up, finding one person who was an alum and talking to them. And then they give you other phone numbers. And I ended up interviewing 21 former Tuskegee students, faculty, administrators, community members um, to really get the story. Um, but to answer your question about what surprised me most, I thought I went into this very critical of Booker T. Washington. Um, as I think you can tell from my disposition, what surprised me was the kind of reverence that the students really still have for Booker T. Washington, even those who are who have also are critical of him. Um, I was also surprised that at the time, when at the height of the movement, students viewed him many different ways. I mean, it was inevitable that in the course of rising up, they were, they were going to have to answer the question, well, what would Booker T say about what you're doing? And some of them decided and wrote about this, that Booker T would be in favor of what they're doing, that actually he 
saw himself as building a black space, an all black space that would be a kind of haven for activists and a training ground for militants. Um, and whereas others, understandably, also were deeply critical of him and saw him, saw themselves, what they were doing is breaking from his legacy of accommodating to white supremacy and, and white power. Um, so that was one of the things that was most surprising to me, but, but I think also instructive because even as they were rising up and challenging their administration, there is a way in which, you know, they're still, they're, they're still black people, even though they're rising up and challenging black administrators, they're both still black and they're in Alabama. And so there is a way in which they are also forced to kind of be on the same team. Uh, in moments. And so there is a kind of sense of solidarity at the, while there is also tension and disagreement and struggle, there, there's also ways in which they feel themselves to be in solidarity with each other. And, and the students couldn't have known all the things the faculty and administration were doing behind the scenes to try to protect the students. But I was able to see some of that, you know, in hindsight, that's one of the things that history the study of you know historical research can do is you can go get access to things and put them together and say oh these things all happened on the same day um in different places look at what different people were doing and we you know you can only have that kind of not omniscience but kind of bird's eye view of different things simultaneously you often can only have that you know many years later when when you go and dig up the records but but any given actor or somebody trying to make a change in the moment, you know, does so with imperfect or less than less information than that, uh, as we all do. Wow, you really make it come alive, Brian. I got to say, this is even better than the book itself. Hearing you talk about it with such passion, you know what really strikes me, both in your words and in your printed words and history, people like Booker T or whoever, the students, the anonymous. What an amazing amount of courage in those days, in that time, in those places it took to take a stand, really where it's life and death. Weren't you blown away? I mean, here we are sitting here in our cush lives to a degree. These people really put their, their necks on the line, their breath on the line. That, that took a lot, a lot of courage. Absolutely. I mean, it's really, you're absolutely right. Compared to where I sit, where they were sitting, um, there's no comparison. I mean, the students tell tell stories of going out into the rural counties first to work as literacy tutors and a kind of tutoring. Like, you know, we're going to go. We understand that the the schools in the rural in rural Alabama are insufficient, especially for Black students. Since we have um, richer resources here at Tuskegee, we're going to deploy ourselves as like literacy tutors. Um, to to kind of raise awareness, raise you know support development of literacy and learning among our rural cousins. But they're going out there at a moment when people in the rural counties are rising up and are getting confident, and they're working with SNCC on these voter registration campaigns, and some of them are staying with families who've lost a loved one by the side of the road because they were involved in this political activism. So they are, you know, like they are 
face to face with they're they're not meeting the people in the rural counties as like lesser than or kind of cringing or you know they're facing they're they're meeting them at a moment when they're bold and they're confident and their backs are straight and so they come away so it's like the tutors get tutored um in in a way the rural people are teaching the tuskegee students and so they come away with i think that further gives them a kind of sense of confidence in their overall mission you know and of course it's a time when you feel confidence in the project of social change because it's happening everywhere and in many ways young people are asking themselves well, what's our part in this global revolution you see nations in africa rising up and throwing off european colonialism and they can see that that people in africa whom they used to they used to look down on those people they used to think just like the rural people they used to think oh we're going to go over there and teach them and now it's those people who seem to be far ahead of them here in the United States of America. And so suddenly they feel, wow, we have really put up with a lot for a long time and everybody else is racing ahead and getting their freedom. What are we going to do? What's our contribution to this? And so suddenly they're learning from people in the rural counties. Suddenly they're learning from people in the poorer African nations. Suddenly all those people in those places seem brave and heroic and forward thinking and visionaries. Um, and so the tables have turned in a lot of, in the world, seem, the tables seem to be turning. And so they, um, I think they gained a lot of confidence from that as well. This is a tough question, a big question, almost an impossible question. In terms of our country here in America, will we ever see white supremacy stand down? Will we see justice and equality? Not perfect. There's no such thing. But it feels like we were making some strides, some progress, and now it's roaring back. Just doesn't seem like it's going to go away. That is a really tough question. And, you know, I'm one of these people who I certainly think that when a pessimist answers this question, you know, every, everybody has to listen and listen carefully to the voices of pessimism and the reason is that there is a there is, there can be a way in which we get too self-congratulatory and feel like we've gone i mean lately it, it's hard to feel self-congratulatory but there that has been a problem in the past where like you know we have the black president and then somebody and then suddenly people feel like we're we're cool we're safe and so the voices of pessimism have been a healthy ingredient let's just say in our national dialogue and a necessary ingredient that said so with that caveat aside i am actually one of the people who remains hopeful i think there are many um impulses germs of possibility that are part of our body politics many of them of course are unhealthy and we're seeing some really unhealthy germs grow and metastasize and become you know um, just infect the whole thing and arguably they've been there all along they've been throughout the body all along i mean you could easily write that story and tell that story and that is a true story for sure 
But there are other germs of possibility and other moments that provide a view of <clears throat> other possibilities. One of the things that I kind of hold on to and think a lot about is the period of Reconstruction, frankly. It's brief. In the long history of this nation, it is brief. Lord knows it is brief. And it is, as you say, it is imperfect. But some things happened in some parts of this country that make you believe that there's nothing about our current setup that has to be. Like, like things can be different. We can organize ourselves in different ways. And the book that gives me the most hope is by W.E.B. Du Bois. It's called Black Reconstruction. And in that book, he describes a kind of really a revolution in the South that sweeps up briefly people uh, of many different types, some of whom go along with the idea that, oh, okay, I guess what we're going to have now is like uh, democracy. Like, okay, uh, black, black people can be judges. Okay. Um, oh, black people can be in charge of things. Oh, they can be elected to Congress. Okay. Um, some black people were elected. Some people, some, there, there are cases where people were elected to represent communities in which it, that communities that include people who used to own them. I mean, it's just like it is, it was briefly a world turned upside down. And even when you take the school, the kind of, you know, my subfield, there's a chapter, I think it's chapter 15. I could be wrong. One of those later chapters about founding the public school. And he goes through how black people were so passionate about education that their idea was what we really need is free public education in the South for everybody. So then there's a bunch of white students who go to school for the first time in the South because black people insisted that there be free public schools available to everybody. And then in some places, I don't want to overstate this, but in some places that everybody goes to school together and you have these white, you know, Democratic Party, which was the party of segregation and party of slavery. You have white Democratic Party newspapers saying, oh, uh, and Du Bois quotes them saying, so, okay, I guess kids are going to go to school together now. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay, well. I guess that's happening. Like they just kind of they they remark they they remark about how remarkable it is that that's happening. So the Klan and the rise, the, the I think it's important to hold on to the idea that it took a lot of violence. It took terrorism. They had to violently overthrow these governments. They had to claim fraud in the elections. Really, the whole playbook we're seeing right now. They had to. They had to terrorize white people. They had to terrorize white people. You know, before Reconstruction, most lynchings were of white people in the South because you don't destroy your own property. But once black people are freed, now they're free, their they're potential for political advocacy and what they might do with that freedom, that such limited freedom, such as it was, but what they might do with it becomes a problem for those who want to reinstate 
uh, white supremacy. And so the, they use the tool of lynching. Uh, there's a new book out about, I'm forgetting the title, about the way in which they deputized all white people to basically become uh, able to murder black people in, under any circumstance for any reason. And so it took a lot of violence to put the, the genie of revolution back in the bottle. And we, and then the North, the powers that be in the North really decided, white people in the North decided that to reconcile with the South, they would reconcile with white supremacy, that that would be the glue that bound the nation back together. That didn't have to happen. And so there are ways in which we had a moment where we could have turned in a different direction, but we didn't. And so we laid the, a new foundation for white supremacy. I mean, imagine if like, the, there were Nazi statues all over Germany. You know what I mean? Like that's what we allowed them to do. We allowed them to erect statues, Confederate statues all over the nation. Like we really allowed this to fester and not just fester, to be, but to be confident and to become, a, we allowed their ideology to become the national ideology. And so the whole thing got reconstructed in a way that now it's like we're trying to attack it again. And so we shouldn't be surprised that it's tough. But I guess this is a long answer. You said I could do long answers, but this is a long way of saying why I have hope because I see that I see this history feels, the more I dig into it, the more it feels really contingent to me. Like things don't have to happen the way they did happen. And I see glimmers of hope for other possibilities and for whatever reason, I, I guess I, I want to hold on to the hope that things could be different in the future. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www patreon.com backslash what matters most and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.